the old pilot's plain tales, still waiting for help, still praying. The north of Africa holds the world's largest hot desert, known as the greatest desert, or more commonly by the Arabic word Sahara. It is bounded to the east by the Red Sea, to the north by the Mediterranean, and the west by the Atlantic. To the south, its vast expanse, some 3.6 million square miles, is halted by the Sahel, a belt of semi-arid tropical savanna around the Niger River Valley and the sub-Saharan Sudan. It is a vast area, covered mainly by expanses of rocky hamada, stone plateaus, and less so by ergs, sand seas and gravel plains, but within these areas are huge sand dunes, some of which are over 600 feet, 180 meters high. Much of the Sahara is flat with wadi, dry valleys, dry lakes and salt flats, but it also boasts vast mountain ranges, many volcanic in nature. The one thing that is common to all of the Sahara is the heat. A wide portion suffers from over 4,000 hours of scorching sunlight a year and some areas see direct sunlight for 98% of daylight hours, giving average air temperatures which exceed 40 degrees centigrade, 104 Fahrenheit, and ground temperatures of over 80 degrees centigrade, that's over 180 degrees Fahrenheit. There are big diurnal temperature changes, but it's a myth that the nights are freezing cold, unless it's a rare event and you happen to be amongst the high mountains. Rainfall is rare, and in the central and eastern parts, practically non-existent. As a consequence, plant life is scarce. There is some animal life, mainly lizards, vipers and insects, which include the large death-stalker scorpion. Its venom contains large amounts of neurotoxin. All in all, it's a pretty inhospitable place, as some have found to their misfortune. It was the 4th of April 1943, and the crew of Lady Be Good picked themselves up from their parachute drop. It was pitch black, not a light visible anywhere, except for the stars above, which filled the sky with a stunning display so intense it could only be seen like that from a few remote places in the world. As they shouted to find each other in the dark, the sound of their aircraft, droning on, flying away from them, slowly faded until it was as quiet as the grey. Eventually they resorted to firing their weapons and sending signal flares up into the inky blackness to help the crew come together. A few were close enough to find each other easily and eventually the stragglers came in, but a headcount only revealed eight. They were missing one, John Voraka, the bombardier. They were all surprised to find themselves standing on land. They had thought they had been out over the Mediterranean Sea. It had been their first operational mission, and it hadn't gone well. 
Lady B. Good was a B-24 Liberator of the U.S. Army Air Corps. She wasn't an appealing lady, as she handled like a long tractor trailer with 18 flat tyres, and she was considered the ugly sister of the heavy American bombers in the Second World War. However, the Liberator was still a rugged aircraft, and destined to become the most produced American bomber in history. More than 18,000 were built during the war, mainly by the Ford Motor Company. She had her faults, a tendency to catch fire if ditching or crash landing, because the high-mounted Davis wing had a habit of breaking away from the fuselage. She was hard to fly in formation, and her pilots needed big biceps to wrestle the clumsy controls. But the ugly lady had some good redeeming features. A high top speed, good combat range, a decent ceiling, and she carried a good bomb load. When they got airborne that night, the crew of Lady Be Good would have undoubtedly been feeling a bit nervous. They were going into combat for the very first time. Pushing up the throttles of his two Pratt & Whitney twin WASP supercharged radials, Lieutenant Hatton was one of the last to accelerate down the strip at Salouche Airfield, and leaving the lights behind him, they headed out over the Mediterranean Sea, slowly clambering up to their cruising altitude. Salouche had been an Italian Regia Aeronautica base, but had been taken over by the U.S. Army 9th Air Force during the Eastern Desert Campaign. It lay on the North African coast, near Benghazi in Libya. Lady B. Good was part of a 21-ship formation tasked with attacking Naples in Italy, over 700 miles north-northwest of them. The conditions weren't good, with poor visibility and the Sirocco wind that blows up from the Sahara, choking the atmosphere with red dust and covering everything with sand. Other aircraft turned back, their engines running rough as they sucked sand into the intakes, but Lieutenant Hatton, the pilot, carried on towards the target. Strong winds buffeted the Liberator, and they were forced to make numerous course changes to stay close to their track, and as they approached their target, the visibility was still too poor to find it. Downhearted, they jettisoned their bombs into the sea and turned back for Africa. Other liberators in the group had long since come and gone, so Lady Be Good was alone in the sky as they headed back across the Mediterranean. In the poor weather, the one piece of navigation equipment that they could use was their ADF, their Automatic Direction Finder. It was a loop aerial that would accurately indicate the bearing of a radio beacon. With little else to go by, and in unexpectedly strong winds, the navigator was struggling to come up with accurate positions. We are unsure whether the ADF failed, or the navigator just wanted to confirm its readings, but the pilot called Salouche Airstrip, saying that they had a fault, and they asked for bearings to fly. It would be the last call to be heard from Lady Be Good. Some reports say that the airfield refused to answer, believing it to be a Nazi ruse, but a more likely account is found in the official report of Graves' registration, which states, 
The aircraft flew on a 150-degree course towards Seleuche Airfield. The craft radioed for a directional reading from the HFDF station at Benina, which was nearby, and received a reading of 330 degrees from Seleuche. The actions of the pilot in flying 440 miles into the desert are indications that the navigator probably took a reciprocal reading off the back of the radial direction loop antenna from a position beyond and south of Seleuche, but on course. The pilot flew into the desert, thinking he was still over the Mediterranean and on the way home. Despite their colleagues at the airstrip hearing the aircraft overhead and firing flares into the sky to help them, the crew of the Liberator flew clean over their base and onwards, over the brutally inhospitable terrain of the Sahara Desert. They were hopelessly lost and running out of fuel when the first engine failed. The crew decided to abandon their aircraft rather than risk a crash landing and they parachuted out over what they believed to be the sea, only to discover that it was a sea of sand. Lady Be Good stubbornly carried on for a further 16 miles before it settled onto the desert and came to a grinding halt. Her fuselage was mainly intact, but it had broken after the wings and cockpit. With no fuel, there was no fire. Even the glass in the cockpit windows was unbroken. Still on board were food rations and water that the crew would soon be in desperate need of, and, more importantly, a usable radio. But they had no idea where their liberator was. The following day, a search-and-rescue mission was launched from Seleucia Field in an attempt to find them, but they failed to see any trace of the aircraft or its crew. The disappearance of the Lady Be Good became a mystery, one of the many unexplained losses, and the Air Force moved on. There was a war to be fought. Out in the desert, the crew still believed that they must be close to the Mediterranean and had no idea that they were hundreds of miles south, so they decided to set off for the coast. What we know of their walk through the Sahara comes from the co-pilot's diary, Lieutenant Robert Toner, as he described their efforts with sober brevity. Sunday, April 4th, 1943. Naples, things pretty well mixed up. Got lost returning. Out of gas, jumped. Landed in desert at 2 o'clock in morning. No one badly hurt. Can't find John. All others present. Monday 5th. Start walking northwest. Still no John. A few rations. Half a canteen of water. One cap full per day. Sun fairly warm. Good breeze from northwest. Night very cold. No sleep. Rested and walked. Tuesday 6th. Rested at 11.30, sun very warm. No breeze, spent afternoon in hell. 
no planes, etc. Rested until five. Walked and rested all night. 15 minutes on, five off. Wednesday, April 7th, 1943. Same routine. Everyone getting weak. Can't get very far. Prayers all the time. Again, afternoon very warm. Hell. Can't sleep. Everyone sore from ground. Thursday 8th. Hit sand dunes. Very miserable. Good wind, but continuous blowing of sand. Everyone now very weak. Thought Sam and Moore were all done. Lamont's eyes are gone. Everyone else's eyes are bad. Still going northwest. Friday 9th. Shelley, Rip, and Moore separate and try to go for help. Rest of us all very weak. Eyes bad. Not any travel. All want to die. Still very little water. Nights are about 35. Good wind. No shelter. One parachute left. It was on that Friday that the group split up. Some of the crew were close to death, and the majority were too exhausted and dehydrated to carry on. So Ripslinger, the engineer, Shelley and Moore, both gunners, agreed to try to reach help and then return. Survival experts estimate that without proper hydration, the men would probably manage a maximum of 30 miles. But when the group split up, they had already travelled 80. An unbelievable achievement. After the decision, Toner continued to make entries in his diary, a poignant record of his decline towards death. Dehydration is unpleasant in the extreme, and it's remarkable that some of this brave crew were still alive, let alone able to move on. Their bodies would be suffering from fevers, which would only add to the discomfort of the intense heat their ability to cool themselves by sweating would stop. Their mouths would dry up, as would their tear ducts. Standing would make them dizzy, and they would be suffering from low blood pressure, rapid heart rates and lethargy, confusion and seizures. Saturday, April 10th, 1943. Still having prayer meetings for help. No sign of anything. A couple of birds. Good wind from north. Really weak now. Can't walk. Pain's all over. Still all want to die. Night's very cold. No sleep. Sunday, 11. Still waiting for help. Still praying. Eyes bad lost all our weight, aching all over, could make it if we had water, just enough left to put our tongues to, have hope for help very soon, no rest, 
still same place. The final entry was made on Monday, April the 12th, written in thick pencil lines. No help yet. Very cold night. The fate of Lady Begood's crew would remain a mystery for more than 15 years until a British oil exploration team spotted the wreckage of the Liberator while conducting an aerial survey of the San Sea of Kalanskio. They marked the position. It was confirmed by geologists from British Petroleum, but it took a year before an expedition from the United States Air Force Base at Wheelus in Libya set out to find it. There on the side of the aircraft were the hand-painted words, faded in the fierce desert sun, Lady Be Good. The dryness of the desert had kept the lady in an amazing state of preservation. The coffee in a thermos bottle was still drinkable, and many of the aircraft's 50 caliber machine guns were still in working condition and actually fired by team members. The radio worked. Some food and supplies were intact, and the log of Navigator Lieutenant Hayes was found with his final entry posted over Naples. There were no signs, however, of the crew. Then they discovered several improvised arrow markers at varying distances to the northwest, one made of boots, others made from parachutes weighed down with rocks, but the markers stopped at the edge of the vast, shifting sea of sand of the Kalanskiel. Over the next few years, further searches and accidental discoveries would slowly bring the story of Lady Be Good together, as the bodies of the crew were found. The personal diary, which revealed details of their desert trek and suffering, was discovered in the pocket of the co-pilot. They shared one canteen of water for eight days, left behind clothing articles, May West life vests, footwear, parachute material and other items to mark their path and came to pause about 81 miles north of Lady Be Good. Five remained while three others continued north in search of help. Staff Sergeant Guy Shelley's remains were discovered 24 miles north of the recovered five bodies. Finally, the remarkable flight engineer Harold Ripslinger's remains were found 27 miles north of Shelley's body. Ripslinger had walked 200 miles from the crash site before the desert took his life. The one crew member not accounted for, that of Bombardier John Borevka, had died when his parachute failed to open after bailing out. Only one body was never found. The remains of Staff Sergeant Vernon Moore. Had the crew journeyed south to find the crash site, Lady Be Good would have been there for them with provisions, supplies and a working radio to call for help. Had they had maps of North Africa and managed to locate their position, still further but within walking distance, there was a life-giving oasis waiting for them.
My thanks this week to listener Joe from Buffalo for the idea for this tale and for Greg Willits for his wonderful reading of Lieutenant Toner's diary. If you enjoyed this story, please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Plain Tales is a featured segment of the Airline Pilot Guy show. You can find that at airlinepilotguy.com.